It's Tuesday, July 21st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Good news on the vaccine front. In early stage trials, a vaccine candidate from Oxford University and AstraZeneca caused no serious side effects and produced an immune response for both antibodies and T-cells. The U.S. has also paid $1.2 billion to secure at least 300 million doses when it becomes available. Dave Lawler, world editor at Axios, joins us for the latest on the Oxford vaccine. Next, when looking at the economic toll the pandemic has inflicted on the country, many people are focused on job losses and unemployment benefits. But another thing to look out for is wage cuts. Many Americans who kept their jobs have seen temporary hour and pay cuts that could become permanent or pave the way for more layoffs. Megan Casella, economics reporter at Politico, joins us for these widespread wage cuts. Finally, as we look to some schools reopening in the fall, summer camps may be able to offer a preview. And unfortunately, not all good news. Summer camps in parts of the U.S. are closing as children and counselors are testing positive for COVID-19 despite layers of prevention such as requiring masks and asking families to shelter in place ahead of showing up to camp. Rachel Adams-Hurd, reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I think uh, it is uh, it is good news. I mean, effectively, we have 23 COVID-19 candidate vaccines in clinical development. And as of today, we add one candidate vaccine for which phase one clinical data is available. So we have three, uh, which is available in peer-reviewed journals. Joining us now is Dave Lawler, world editor at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Dave. Great to be with you. Got some more good news on the vaccine front in the fight against coronavirus a vaccine by Oxford University and AstraZeneca. They're saying it could be the most promising candidate currently in development right now, is producing an immune response and appears to be safe. We've been hearing a lot about Moderna as a front runner in this vaccine thing, but right now the new vaccine by AstraZeneca is actually doing really well. Tell us a little bit about it, Dave. Sure. So this was the first vaccine along with one in China to move into phase three, which is the last phase of trials before a potential approval. So Moderna's also, we've seen good preliminary results from them too. I would say that these three are kind of the front runners, the the Oxford one, the Moderna one, and then one that's being produced in China. But Oxford's is just a little bit ahead of the Moderna one and, and where it is in the process at the moment. Basically, the results that were published today said that there were only minor side effects, things like soreness, headaches. Some people felt feverish, perhaps, but no major concerns in terms of side effects. And it did produce an immune response in everybody who got two shots of the vaccine. There's two rounds of immunization with this vaccine. So promising early results. Now we have to see the results from phase three, which is much broader testing and is happening now. And how does this vaccine work? The immune response that it's producing is antibodies and then also T cells as well, right? Right. So this works on two fronts. I was actually just speaking with an epidemiologist who was very impressed by the level of immunity that was generated by this vaccine. That's one of the good indications here is that it's possible to produce a vaccine that does have a strong immune response. The What we don't know is is this actually going to prevent everybody who gets it from getting coronavirus? This could be 
they get the virus and then they have an immune response. And in the meantime, they might be able to spread it or it won't be entirely foolproof. We won't know that until there's a longer term testing. And like I said, phase three trials are happening now. So we should get clearer results. So we, we know that, you know, if you get two shots of this vaccine, you will produce antibodies, you will have a level of immunity, but we don't know whether it's going to be 100% effective and we don't know whether you could still get the virus and then fight it off more quickly than you otherwise would have. One of the big questions to watch out for after this is who gets all of the vaccines first? I mean, obviously the whole world wants this. The U.S. government does have a stake in a lot of different vaccine candidates including this one by Oxford and AstraZeneca. They paid $1.2 billion to secure at least 300 million doses. But that's the big question. Who starts getting it first? Because as I said, I think the UK also bought up a bunch of doses as well. Yeah, we do have the point now where richer governments are pre-ordering doses of these vaccines, right? The promising ones, even some that are earlier in the process, you know, governments are buying up doses of them in case they work. That's a good thing because it allows them, it gives them resources to fund this production. But it's a bad thing because if you are a middle income country or, you know, a developing country, are you going to be last in line to get this vaccine? And is there going to be enough, you know, even in the first year or so of production for you to get the vaccine? There are people working on this question. This is something that some governments have spoken out on. There may be systems in place by the time these vaccines are are rolling off the line and ready to go. But It's a huge question mark, and I think that's just one of the reasons why we have good news today, but there's a lot more hurdles to jump over. Exactly. Uh, AstraZeneca has committed to making 2 billion doses, and they say maybe 1 billion of those could be available by the end of the year. And that's the thing. I guess they said that it could be cleared for emergency use as early as October, possibly, but it's still going to take a little time to roll it all out. So that would be for really high-risk people, it would almost be another phase of testing, right? They would roll it out wider to people who are at particular risk, maybe frontline workers and things would get it early, but it just won't be ready on a massive scale until at some point next year, probably. Early next year is the timeline that Anthony Fauci has put out there. So we're hoping that that's the case, but we we won't know exactly because, you know, as, as we've talked about, this phase three is just getting underway. I mean, it's a scientific marvel that we have three vaccines now heading into phase three trials only seven months after this outbreak was discovered. So it's by far the fastest that anything like this has ever moved. Dave Lawler, world editor at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Employers know that employees obviously hate wage cuts. It's bad for morale. It can be bad for productivity. But now that these shutdowns are really lasting longer than many of us anticipated in March and April, that they might either become permanent or at least last for, you know, another several months, perhaps through the end of the year. Joining us now is Megan Casella, economics reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Megan. Thanks for having me. We continue to monitor the economy as we go through the coronavirus pandemic. One of the things that a lot of people are focused on is job losses and people getting unemployment benefits. But another thing we should be keeping an eye on also are wage cuts. A lot of people have taken cuts to their pay throughout this thing, thinking, you know, it might be a short-term solution, but the pandemic continues on and on and on, and there's a worry that a lot of these pay cuts could be permanent. Megan, tell us about this, please. 
there's no federal data on this. Really, federal data actually shows that wages are rising, but that's only because low-wage workers are disproportionately losing their jobs. And so what we're starting to see now is economists putting out different studies and estimates, and likely at least 4 million, maybe up to 7 million workers have taken cuts to their pay over the past several weeks, couple of months now, likely because their employer, you know, looked at their balance sheets and said, maybe as a way to preserve jobs, we're just going to have everybody take a 10% cut or 20% cut, whatever it might have been. The issue, though, is that now, you know, that trend is growing for one. It tends to be a really rare move in the U.S. because employers know that employees obviously hate wage cuts. It's bad for morale. It can be bad for productivity. But now that these shutdowns are really lasting longer than many of us anticipated in March and April, that they might either become permanent or at least last for you know another several months, perhaps through the end of the year, or that they might lead to layoffs. Because if, if an employer in April said, I need to cut income, and now you know they're in really dire straits and need another move, another way to save money, the only step left really is to probably lay off some workers. And you look at it from the perspective of both sides, the employee, their business tells them, hey, we need to cut your pay just to make it through. You say, "Okay, I have no other option. I probably am not going to be able to find another job that will pay me the same. And this is going to be short term. So you agree to it. And then, as you mentioned just right now, for the employer, they're going to go with this option, hopefully, before they start firing people, furloughing, laying people off. So they both kind of feel like they have no other option but to do this. And you look at what the effect is going to be. Smaller paychecks, less spending, the recession that's going on would be extended. So this is a really bad sign all around because, you know, for the reasons you just mentioned, it shows that employees feel that they have no better option, as you said. And the New York Federal Reserve actually put out a survey this past week. Americans now feel they have a less than 50 percent chance of being able to find a job within three months if they lost their job today. And that's a more than 16 percentage point drop from a year ago. You know, these employees in many cases probably feel lucky that they have a job and they say, "Okay, I'll take this 20 percent pay cut because it means I can keep working and hopefully it's temporary. But we just don't know where things go from here. And it's a worrisome trend for sure. And these pay cuts generally hit more people in white collar industries. I know the job losses tend to be more low income workers, but these tend to be on the other side of things. One of those studies I mentioned was put out by some Federal Reserve economists and economists at the University of Chicago, and they found that three-fourths of the cuts in pay fell within the top 40% of wage earners. So on one hand, that's somewhat of a good thing you could say. You could say these are workers who are more able to weather the cut to their income and might have more wealth to carry them through or might not be as dependent on their full paycheck. On the other hand, these workers are also the ones that tend to be more shielded from an economic recession. And so if these workers in the top 40% are already feeling something like a pay cut, that also really you know, says something worrying about the depth of the recession and damage to the labor market as well. What are some of the companies that are going through this? I know my company, iHeartMedia, did something similar to this. A lot of people took cuts in, you know, quarter two and quarter three type of thing. What are some of the other companies that are doing this? So I spoke with one economist, Julia Coronado, who tracked U.S.-based companies with market caps greater than one billion. So really, really, you know, major companies. And she found that of the ones that were providing details on earnings calls, 42% were announcing that they were reducing pay between April and July. So some of those on there are Lyft, the ride-sharing app, was announcing reductions for all salaried employees. And other companies were focusing their reductions just on their top executives or maybe their board. Best Buy and Gap both did that. So some major names were doing this, but also, you know, we know that just anecdotally, we know that sort of mom and pop shops and smaller companies and restaurants and things were doing this as well. We're seeing cases rise. 
this thing is not going to be over for some time still. I noted in your article there was uh, you know, a number of American households expecting to lose income over the next month. That, according to a recent survey, that number is beginning to rise. So what can we be expecting soon? Likely expecting the trend to just increase. I know those University of Chicago economists, for example, are in the process of updating their paper. They're seeing some of those trends really continue and spread the longer that this goes on. And we also know that even, you know, regardless of what governments do and whether governors decide to actually impose regulations, we know that consumers change their spending habits just based on their own fear of the virus. And so as cases rise, regardless of whether there's actual shutdown restrictions in place, we know that as long as the virus is raging the way that it is now, consumers are going to stay inside. They're going to be spending less money, which, of course, it's good from a public health perspective that they're not going out as much, but bad from an economic perspective that a lot of these businesses then just can't get back on their feet. And, you know, the worrying thing is just maybe companies were able to hang on for a few months, especially smaller businesses, but larger ones as well. And so the longer that this goes on, particularly with no end in sight, really, it just becomes harder and harder to really lean on your savings or maybe you got a loan from the government, but it was short term. It just becomes harder to really hang on without income coming in that you're really depending on. Megan Casella, economics reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So whether these campers came to the camp with COVID and just didn't know it, or if they contracted it from being in the food hall or being in the arts and crafts area or sharing a cabin with other campers who might be infected. Joining us now is Rachel Adams Hurd, reporter at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. Thanks for having me. There's a lot of discussion about what's going to happen when kids return to school or, you know, a lot of school districts are opting not to do that just yet and do uh, online learning, hybrid learning. But we can look to summer camps as being kind of a test run, basically, for some schools. There were still summer camps, day camps, things like that that were going on just as little as, uh, you know, earlier this month. And there wasn't a lot of good news coming out of them, unfortunately. There was a bunch of different places where kids were getting sick with COVID-19. Counselors and other staff were also getting infected there. Rachel, tell us a little bit about it. So we have seen a number of camps that have had to close either because they had positive cases among counselors or positive cases among campers, in a lot of cases both. And what we don't know yet is whether those cases are indicative of the spikes that we're seeing in a lot of places in the U.S. or if it's transmission actually taking place in camp. So whether these campers came to the camp with COVID and just didn't know it, or if they contracted it from being in the food hall or being in the arts and crafts area or sharing a cabin with other campers who might be infected. So I think that's going to be really interesting as we continue to watch this, because that's really going to say a lot about whether we can expect these cases to be transmitted to other students if school resumes in person in the fall. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see if we can actually find it out. But I have to imagine it's probably a little bit of both. Some people getting sick and bringing it in and then a little bit of spread happening there among the campers and and obviously the staff there. Give us some some examples of summer camps that had some problems with this already. I think it's interesting that you're seeing this happen across a variety of different types of camps. So there are some of these southern institutions that are, are overnight camps where people go for weeks at a time 
Kanakuk in Missouri is one of them. Um, and they had 82 cases, I believe, among campers and other staff. And they had to close one of their campsites because of those cases. And we've also seen a YMCA camp in Georgia, another overnight camp where there were 85 cases. But then there were also incidents of positive cases at day camps, places where parents just go to drop off their kids during the day while they try to get some work done. And that's obviously a very different environment than when you're talking about kids coming in from weeks at a time. What was interesting is I was talking to the CEO of the American Camp Association, which is kind of a trade group for all these camps. In a lot of ways, the overnight camps are maybe easier to control and to police because once the kids are on the property, they're yours. You can set the guidelines that you want them to all apply to versus day camps are more like schools. They come for the day, but then they go home to their parents afterwards. So you're actually exposing the kids over a period of time to a lot more people. They had a bunch of guidelines that they set out at the beginning of the summer that they thought camps should be following. And he said that actually the ones who are following all of them, it's a, it's a list of about 10 procedures that they're having a lot of success. It's the ones who maybe say, okay, well, we're going to require shelter in place, but no masks or no social distancing, where you're starting to see some of these cases crop up. Going back to the Kennecook that you were talking about in Missouri, they had a 31-point program of pandemic precautions, and they still got 82 people that came down with it to address poor ventilation. Their cabins were outfitted with filtration systems. On their website, it says, NASA developed units that provide multiple layers of active defense against airborne viruses, bacteria through active filtration, ionization, I mean, they were going overboard with a lot of this stuff, and the virus still was able to spread. So these are where all of the concerns are coming through. Right. And I mean, the key problem here is the fact that kids are so much more likely to be asymptomatic. So you could come into camp and not know that you're sick and go about your daily life, you know, maybe taking those precautions in mind. And counselors are trying to police their campers as much as they possibly can to avoid that type of but at the end of the day, when you are in tight quarters, as we've heard from epidemiologists for months now, you are at an increased risk of contracting COVID-19. And so I think we're hearing from a lot of parents and a lot of camp organizers who are saying, you know, you did everything right. And somehow um, we still had cases crop up at our, at our facilities. Rachel, you're based in Houston right now. And you had a note in your article, too, about how hospitals are ramping up. They're preparing for more young people possibly to get into the hospitals. And as you mentioned, you know, young kids don't get it as much. The symptoms aren't as severe, but they're still prepping just in case. It's the percentage of young children who do develop severe cases of COVID-19, but that's so low. But of course, when you see an increase in the absolute numbers, you're going to see an increase in the number of children on an absolute term that, that end up having those severe cases. And, and of course, some of those cases do require going to the ICU and, and, and even sometimes having to go on a ventilator. So in talking to doctors here, I, I could get the sense that they were definitely preparing for that and that they've already actually seen that in the last few weeks. Rachel adams Heard, reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.